You are now listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Doc, sharing insights through real, honest, and practical ways to improve your communication and relationships. Featuring your hosts, Dr. Pamela Kreiser, Meredith Edwards Nagel, and Taylor Polendo. would like to personally welcome you, Jason Harper, to our podcast. We appreciate you being here. We can't wait to hear about the insights that you have to share with us. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you all so much. It's really cool to be on the show. I've listened to most of your episodes and it's uh, it's an honor and privilege to uh, be on the list. We first want to connect you with our audience by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Jason Harper. I am a, uh, I'm a mediator. I am a alternative dispute resolution consultant. I am a adjunct professor. I do a lot of things. I'm a conflict coach. I do all of that and it's a fun time. And I'm a dad on top of that and a, and a husband too. So my main areas of practice are workplace and really special education is what I do the most. And, and that's in the K through 12 range. And so what I mediate are disputes between families and school districts or charter schools in regards to a number of different issues, whether it's placement, services, uh, issues in regards to academics. That's where I come in. I do that most from a mediation standpoint. I'm also an ADR consultant. And essentially what that means is I coach administrators, superintendents, families, on how to effectively communicate within special education. And I do that for, oh gosh, about 70 districts and 50 charter schools throughout California and a couple of districts outside of California as well. I am also a adjunct professor at Pacific Coast University School of Law. That's how I met one of the co-hosts uh, of this, of this uh, wonderful named. podcast. It's <laughs> Meredith Edwards, the, the living legend, Meredith Edwards. Okay. I also <laughs> teach at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law, and I teach cross-cultural dispute resolution there, which is awesome. I love it. It's actually, I tell folks this all the time. So in a former life, I was a seventh grade algebra teacher. And I say that law students are about the same as seventh graders, mainly because <laughs> they project as though they know everything, but really they're just trying to figure it out amongst all the changes. So- Amen. <laughs> Well, well, so that's, uh, so that's what else I do. And outside of my professional life as a mediator, I was president of the uh, Southern California Mediation Association, which is the largest association of mediators in the in California and about third or fourth in the country. And I was uh, the, one of the founding members of Kids Managing Conflict, which is a nonprofit sister organization of the SCMA, Southern California Mediation Association, that promotes you know, conflict resolution programs in the K through 12 schools. Necessarily on that board anymore. I'm more on advisory at this point, but it's it's a passion of mine. I really believe in it, dating back to my time as a teacher in the middle school and even before that, and all the way up until now. You know, one of the things that helped me achieve success as a mediator was my time interning uh, with the Los Angeles County Bar Association. And while I was interning, I actually was stationed at a middle school helping run their peer mediation program. And so that's what really sparked the passion. And I put on events about it. And then that is what sparked uh, the nonprofit. It was a windy road to get to where I am now, but I think it's pretty cool. It sounds amazing. I want to ask you a little bit about the special needs focus that you have as part of your career. Is that from a particular experience or passion or something inside of you that is a need you want to fill? Give us a little background on how that has come to be. 
Yeah, yeah. The passion for it started with just my time in education. I come from a family of educators. My mom was an English and ROP childcare teacher. So basically ROP is essentially when high schools used to teach you how to make a trade and childcare was one of those trades. And my mom taught that. And so I'd been in classrooms my whole life, whether they were mine or not. That is what sparked the passion for education. And then the further I got along in education, I I worked in special needs uh, programs, whether it's a special day class or just being a one-on-one -on -one paraeducator for a student with special needs with an individualized education plan or an IEP. And that, in my formative years, really it showed me a lot. And it gave me, it gave me a lot. I will say the two things that I gained from my time in special ed before I became a mediator was patience and perspective. Patience from the standpoint of just understanding that just because you taught it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all the way through Friday, doesn't mean that life is going to happen over the weekend and you might be back at square one that following Monday and you have to be okay with that and just trust in the process and trust in what you're doing and trusting in the journey. That was one. And then perspective is the other. Within my windy road of, of professional life, I went corporate for a little while and it was like swimming with sharks. It was that stereotypical downtown LA high rise mega insurance company. And uh, I was in the legal department and it was just, you know, figuring out one way or another to get over on somebody. At least that's how I felt. Mm. And it was a very high pressure situation, but I was noticed to be one of the more relaxed people in the office. And I credit my time in special education with that because I told people all the time, I know what real stakes are. You're dealing with numbers and numbers are fine. I'm actually really good with numbers, but this kid is, we're trying to develop skills that they're going to need for the rest of their life to live. Those are real stakes. And so forgive me if I'm not as stressed out over some numbers mm -hmm. as a, when I think about, you know, what I really, where I actually came from, which is, you know, helping students, you know, pick up the life skills that they need, mm -hmm. pick up the academic skills or the speech and language skills that they need in order to survive uh, and go into adulthood. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, patience and perspective is what really I gained from my time in special education as an educator. And then it just basically informed everything that I've done ever since. But the reason why I went into mediation and chose special ed specifically was going back to my time interning. When I cut my teeth and, and first learned about mediation. And I went to Loyola Law School in downtown Los Angeles, a woman by the name of Mary Colbert. I call her my mediation mom because she gave me the name of mediator. <laughs> she taught me everything and I was so excited. And then I started interning and I realized that to do commercial mediation, I mean, it's fine. It, it can be lucrative, but mm -hmm. it only doesn't, it doesn't go to very many people. It's hard to be very successful in that. And by success, I mean, and my definition of success at the time was to you know, be able to earn, save, travel, and support a family. I didn't have one at the time, but when that time came. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was going to be very difficult for me to do that through the commercial route because I was not an attorney. I was trained at a law school, but I was not an attorney. I didn't take the bar. And then on top of that, I was much younger than everybody else. Everybody in the field at the time was a smooth 25 to 30 years older than me. I've been practicing uh, as an attorney for decades or that been a retired judge i was young i am black and i am you know just not what the not, i'm not what the the prototype looked like so it just wasn't it was very unlikely for me my mentor at the time uh, her name is deborah thomas beasley she's no longer with us but she said okay well look the litigated case is something that's going to be tough for you to build a living off of you can do it but it's not it's not something you're going to really be able to build off of what are you good at? What do you know? 
And I said, well, I'm good at construction defect. I know that for the most part. And then I know education. And she was like, well, tell me about that. And then I just started talking for like 15 minutes straight on all the stuff I knew in education. And she was, this is great. She was like, okay, stop, 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 stop. Please stop talking. Please stop talking. This is what you're going to do. You're going to be a mediator in education, special education. That's what you're going to do. So she told me what my niche was going to be, hmm. essentially. Nice. I just went with it because I'm, I'm very good at doing what I'm told. So I started looking into it and I researched it and I found that, yes, there are mediators that are you know doing special education disputes. And I remembered sitting in the IEP meetings as a person that was a part of the IEP team in my formative years as an educator, I had a real distinct vantage point of what that looks like, what the dynamics are. And so one of the things that I do is I don't just mediate special education disputes. I facilitate the IEP meetings, right? Because I really believe in proactive strategies and really getting in there before the attorneys get involved, before we're filing for due process. Yeah. Well, it's clear you are a man of many talents. You do a lot of things. Uh, what would you say is most rewarding or your favorite part of your work? Oh, man, it's, it's a toss-up. One is when I'm facilitating an IEP meeting and I'm able to resolve a conflict before it really escalates or bring in a certain perspective or a certain point that people hadn't thought of that really makes everyone look at each other differently. Not necessarily a bit of information that can be used in the IEP, but really something that makes everyone look at each other and say, hey, we are on the same team. We are after the same thing. And, and I can work with you. We can work together. In special education, services start at three and they age out at 22. That's a 19 year long relationship, longer than a lot of marriages nowadays. And so in a situation like that, it's not about just that one IEP meeting. It's about the next five, right? You need to figure out a way to be able to work with each other and to be able to work through the differences because the differences are going to happen. Conflict is inevitable. It's an inevitability. We can take the pressure off. There's no such thing as conflict prevention. It's conflict management, right? Because of that, we have to learn how to communicate through the conflict. And the more we do that, the more we create synergy and the more confidence we have in each other to work together moving forward. If I can create a situation where that discovery is made by the rest of the team that's going to be there long after I've left, that's super rewarding because I know who benefits. And that's the student, you know, at the end of the day. The other thing that is really rewarding, it's a, it's a two-way tie. It's teaching. I am a teacher at heart. I really, really love it. If you sat me in a room full of 12-year-olds, and there's a math problem on the, on the screen or on the board, I can fly and I love it. Then we get to the law students and uh, I can still fly, but uh, I'm flying a lot lower. <laughs> you know, but I really, really enjoy it because it, I, I love to be around people and teach them something and, and hopefully see a light bulb go off and, and for somebody to say, hey, I thought of that or, hey, I can actually use this anywhere. Right. And, and when, when that happens, I, I really, really get happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You described a level of openness in a seventh grader that was different than what you described in the, the law student. Would you say it comes down to that? Or would you say it comes down to self-awareness? What is it that you think holds them back from flying higher? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, I think there's, there's the, the sense of there's still a lot of formation going on with the seventh grader and to see that evolution is really, really cool. 
mm-hmm. and hopefully be a part of it. You know, I have so many, like, I wouldn't even call them my victories. I've seen so many victories, period. And it just touches me every time. One of the best things I ever saw, ever saw, was, uh, was a student by the name of Angelica. And she came to me on the first day of school and she said, uh, just so you know, Mr. Harper, I don't do math. My family doesn't do math and I'm really not feeling being here. So I'm going to sit right in the back corner of the class. Look, if you don't call on me, I won't create a hassle for you and oh. we'll, we'll be okay. She had a bit of Meredith Edwards in her, but in any event, wow. it, it was fine. I, I said, you know, that's, that's fine. You're closing yourself off a little early, but have a seat. We'll see where it takes us. And the first quiz comes around and to her shock and awe, she got a B on the quiz. She comes up to me after class and says, what did you do? (laughs) And so I said, I literally did nothing. I just put some numbers and letters on the board. You happen to be paying attention. And what happens is you pay attention, you start to remember things and boom, here you go. You got a B. You earned this. And Mm -hmm. she like looked at me like with this real like, incredulous look on her face she was like "Mm, i'm not sure about this and she went back to her seat but then the test came around and she got a b plus on that Uh oh and then she was like i might be able to do this (laughs) and it got to the point where she was teaching some of the other students in the class how to understand the concepts and all of that Mm -hmm. and ultimately she got an a in the class and she's a civil engineer now oh wow like she does math now (laughs) There's no world or universe where I would take credit for anything to happen. But to see that evolution, to see that, it's hard to see that in very many other places. I say to my students, it's fun to sit in the front row of your success. Because <laughs> we get to see it more, sometimes more so than parents, honestly, because Absolutely. we're in the day to day. So we see we're sitting in the front row watching these things that students do. It's such a privilege. So I share that. Yeah. Absolutely, Jason. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Love it. I, I want to deep dive a little bit into the inevitable, as you called it, conflict, not, sure. what was the word you said? Not conflict management, not conflict prevention. prevention. Yeah. Conflict prevention is not a thing. Yeah. I, I want to know how you define conflict resolution and why this concept is so important for healthy relationships. Yes. Educationally, professionally, and personally. Oh, gosh. How do I define conflict resolution? We got to take a step back and define conflict and then got to work our way around from there. Right. I use the definition of conflict as a a disagreement between two or more parties that result in a perceived threat to a person's needs, interests or concern. If you break that definition down, I always like to as if you're the underlining type, I like to underline the word perceived. Right. Mm -hmm. Because uh, conflict doesn't lie in objective reality. It lies in our expectations that we have for each other, right? It's a perceived threat, right? It's a disagreement that results in a perceived threat to someone's needs, interests, and or concern. When we talk about a perception of a threat to my needs, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a few different types of needs. You got your substantive need, right? Well, things are like it's cold, I need a jacket. That's a need. There's a procedural need, right? We may or may not know people like this. Uh, I don't feel comfortable if things don't go in a particular order, right? And that's an actual need, a psychological need that people have to have an expectation of what's coming next and to know what's coming next. Because if you don't, anxiety comes in, it's a whole thing. And then there's a psychological need like, you know, I don't feel like I'm a part of the team when I don't get CC'd on that email or 
I don't feel like I'm part of the team when I don't get invited to happy hour, right? That's a need of affiliation. That's a need of feeling like you're included, right? We suffer in isolation, but we heal and thrive in community. When that need isn't met, yes, uh, or that, or there's a the perception that I'm not being involved. When that happens, yeah, then we have a conflict. Conflict resolution is when you can walk back that perception, when you can show what the other perspective is or what the other point of view is and be able to work through and come to come back to stasis, right? Because once you, when you perceive that threat, you're heightened, right? What is it that's going to bring us back down? A conversation where we can either debunk that idea that the need is threatened or we can understand that, you know, that the need is threatened, why it's threatened, and then work to another place and, and get to somewhere else. And so that's conflict resolution. Why is that important? Well, it's important because in relationships, generally, we're going to see each other again the next day. It's not a one-off situation. It's not a one-off business transaction. You know, I go to Best Buy, I pick up my PlayStation 5, and I'm out, right? So that's that's not what a relationship is. It's a constant, daily hey, we're going through life together. If we're going through life together, there's a few things that we're going to have to be able to work through. And so that's why that's why I feel that conflict resolution is important in, in relationships, professional and otherwise. A friend of mine asked. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, awesome. asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, they felt that agree to disagree. I think generally they felt like it disregarded things, but I guess their question is, how do you get past that? Is there a way to get kind of past the fluff of arguments and get to the real meat of something? Or are there times, I guess, what do you do when you're not coming to any kind of resolution? That's a good question. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. Let's break that down. First off, the idea or the, the concept of agreeing to disagree. I think that there are circumstances where that would be appropriate. Um, and I think that there are things that we can you know, disagree on that won't affect our relationship on a foundational level. And those happen all the time, right? You know, there's a million examples of that. But when we talk about agreeing to disagree, I, I think it, it depends on the situation, right? And that's, uh, that's the standard boilerplate answer for just about every kind of situation, right? It depends. But let's talk about the sources of conflict. What is the conflict about? And based on the source of conflict, is it something to agree to disagree on? So when I talk about the sources of conflict, I mean, it goes in a number of directions, right? So you have information can be a source of conflict, right? And that's usually the easiest conflict to resolve. Then it goes to resources can be a source of conflict. Resources might be money. It might be land. It might be, you know, time. And, you know, those are a little bit harder, but it is what is workable. The toughest are values, Right. Values are the toughest conflict to resolve. Why? Because an entire philosophy is built off of values. An entire life system is built off of values. So if you're found to be wrong on one thing, it's not just the one thing anymore. You have to walk back your whole life. People are not willing to do that. That's why you see a lot of the conflicts that you see today, politically, when it comes to gender issues, when it comes to racial issues. I mean, it a lot of it comes down to values. And now, how are those values created? And sometimes it's created through misinformation. Sometimes it's created through 
you know, uh, resources and people empowered denying resources to others. And so that all kind of connects, but, but it can turn into values and those can be the, those are the toughest conflicts to uh, resolve. And so when we hear the words agree to disagree, it can be about something that's a little bit higher on the uh, conflict scale, like, you know, on the frivolous side. So it can be something that is relatively minor, but if it's a, you, it, it's hard to have an agree to disagree on your value as a human, right? That is something that is not necessarily an agree to disagree because if your stance is the subjugation of somebody else, that's a whole other animal, right? And so we need to have a much deeper conversation, assuming we want to keep that relationship. Because that's always a choice too. Hmm. But to answer your question specifically, how do we get past the agree to disagree and actually try to resolve the conflict? One, we need to understand what the conflict is about, right? And what is it really about? Is it about this person said this and this person said this? Or is it about what I expect from you and what you expect from me or what you expect of yourself to me is different than what I expect of you? So if our expectations aren't aligned, that's a hard agree to disagree. We need to have a discussion. We need to have a real talk about what are our expectations and how can we get on the same page with that? The problem is more often than not, we don't have the language to figure out what the crux of the situation is. What typically happens when we have arguments is we, we go back to our base language, which is you did this and this is why it sucks. And this is why it hurts. And I want you to do this moving forward. But we don't often have the language to say, hey, you know, I, I have an expectation. Let me talk through what my expectation is of, of you and, and of this relationship and how we need to interact with each other and how I'd like to see us interact with each other. A lot of times we just keep that in our heads and make those silent agreements that the other person doesn't know about, by the way, and just keep it moving. And then when a transgression hits, then, oh, well, that's a violation. And you knew the rules because you agreed to it in my mind. Now we're in World War VI. We need to have the language to uh, to have those discussions because I think over time we've learned the the phrase agree to disagree and it's just you know something that we use as a crutch. But in order to really resolve those disputes, we need to have those deeper discussions. But it's hard to do it when you don't have the language. Mm. Yeah. What advice or techniques do you see that are good examples of good language or questions that we could kind of draw from? I would say that listening for needs is something that people aren't really doing. And I think the more we do that, I think we can build empathy. Once we build empathy, we're on to something. So here's what I mean by listening for needs. Most people in the conflict resolution space talks about active listening, right? And active listening is absolutely important, you know, uh, reframing, summarizing, reflecting, all those things. I think listening for unmet needs is kind of the next level of that. Yeah. You're still actively listening, but it's adding a, another layer where you're trying to identify where that person is missing from a need-based standpoint. There's five basic needs that literally everybody on the earth has. Appreciation, people want to feel as though they're valued. Affiliation, people want to feel like they're a part of something larger than themselves. They want to feel like they're a part of the group. Autonomy, people want to have some type of control over their lives and things that they care about. Status, people want to feel at minimum like they're being treated the same as everyone else. At a minimum, I want to be treated the same as everyone else. That's status. When I'm not treated the same as everyone else, that's when we have problems. And then role, R-O-L-E. People want to feel like what they're doing isn't necessarily trivialized. It has some lasting impact longer than just in that moment. Everything we do in life is to meet at least one of those needs. Everything that we do in life. 
So when we run into a conflict and we're listening to our significant other, our partner, our colleague, whomever, when we hear them talk about a situation that they were in, a conflict that they're in, whether it's with you or with somebody else, if you can attune your ears to listen for what need is being missed and you're able to identify what that missing need was, it changes the conversation because it lets that person know that not only are you listening, but you're actually identifying where they were in that moment on the inside when that particular event happened. That's one side. That's one benefit. Mm -hmm. And the other benefit is for you, because since everyone has those same needs, you know what it feels like to not have that need met. Everyone knows what it feels like to feel like they have no control over the situation. That's autonomy. Everyone knows what it feels like to feel left out. That's affiliation. Everyone knows what it feels like to be treated worse than everyone else. That's status. And so if you can identify that missing need, not only are you giving that person the words to where they were feeling on the inside, or at the very least, you're showing that effort, which is honoring to the speaker. Not only are you doing that, but you're also building the empathy within yourself because you know what that feels like. Not to make it about you, but to let people know that, hey, I understand where you're coming from, from a standpoint of you were expecting one thing and something else entirely different happened. I've been there. I may not have had your exact specific situation, Mm -hmm. but I know what it feels like to have reality not quite measure up to what you were hoping for. And we can speak about that. And people feel as though they're more connected to you uh, when that happens. From there, the conversation go in a million different directions, but you're going to look at each other a little bit differently after that, though. Who or what is your biggest motivator? Uh, my biggest motivator at this point is me. I'm here for world domination. Um, <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Uh, <laughs> my biggest motivation at this point, I mean, the motivation has changed over time, right? When I first broke into mediation, I wanted to prove myself to every other mediator that was like, twice my age, that I could do it, that I could do it. When I got my first training, I was like, wait a minute, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm the third out of six kids growing up. I've been mediating my whole life. I just started getting paid for it. Basically, it was just a fight for respect and acknowledgement at first. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of morphed into, I guess the best way I can say it is I'm a big sports nut, NBA specifically. So Steph Curry is one of my favorite players. For a number of reasons, but he's one of my favorites currently. He said something that really kind of spoke to where I am now. It was this. He said this around the All-Star game. He's a three-time champion. He's done a lot. And he said, you know, I've reached a point in my career where there are things that I want to accomplish, but I have nothing left to prove. And that's where I am now. And so really, it's just about, I just want to be the best Jason Harper That's my biggest motivator. I want to be the best version of me because I learned that there's only one, right? There's only one. There will never be another one. And I say that with all humility, by the way. Um, There will only, there will, and thankfully, there's only one Meredith Edwards. I knew I was about to say, thank God, there's only one of you. I mean, look, look, and I had the, I had the fortune of running into this one and it was in its, and it's been, it's, mm. so there's only one. I want to be the best, be the best version of myself. And that's just about getting better every day. That's where, that's my new why. The earlier why was rooted in imposter syndrome. The earlier why was rooted in just insecurity, scarcity mindsets, the thought that if somebody else got it, that means I could never get it. It took a long time to break through that particular 
mindset and that particular thought process where when I was told what my niche was going to be or my niche, you know where you're from, what my niche in mediation was going to be, special ed, I was like, okay, well, let me do some research onto special ed mediators in the field and all that jazz. And I met one. I've been hounding this person. I won't say the person's name, but I've been, I was hounding this person for months and I finally got to sit down with this person. And so I, I typed up my resume and I, I was like super excited about going in. I was going to ask to be an apprentice and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, I go in and I meet with this person and the person looked at my resume, looked at me and said, well, the reason why I'm doing this and the reason why you won't be doing this is because I have a master's in business administration oh. and I've been it, 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 looking back on it, it made no sense, but I have this and I've done this and I've done this. And so, no, you can't work under me. No, you probably won't be doing this, but here are some flyers. I want you to hand this out to some families in the area and let them know about me. And so, yeah, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. So I go and sit down in my car and I just sit there for about a good 20 minutes. And I'm just like, I'm, I am sad. (laughs) Like I am hurt. I am just like dejected. Every word that you can think of that even remotely comes to to those things. I am that. You could have bought and sold me for a nickel at that moment. Yeah. And so then I got angry. And then I was like, you know what? It's fine. I'm gonna do this myself. I just kept, I just kept at it. Kept, you know, researching. I kept putting myself out there and I had to get creative. I put on my own seminar. It was a whole thing, like in Seal Beach, no less. It was, it was nuts. Mm-hmm. But I ended up getting my first, you know, consulting contract. And, and now I was doing the work that this person said that I wouldn't be doing. And so the first, oh gosh, I think the first half of my ADR career was one, getting respect from the other mediators in the field that were, you know, not even doing what I was doing, but just the commercial mediators and getting their respect, retired judges and the 30 year attorneys getting their respect. Right. So that was one aspect. And then the other aspect was proving that person wrong every single day. And in my mind, I had to prove it with every contract that I got. I had to prove it with every client that I picked up. And every one I picked up, I immediately had that person in my mind. I said, hey, that one's for you. <laughs> it was like about six years, seven years later. I hadn't seen that person since. But we always like go in the same circles, but I never saw that person until we're on the same panel for a panel discussion. And, and I'm SCMA president at this point. Like I'm like known in the field now. And so I'm like the champ at this point. So I'm really hyped up. My adrenaline is through the roof. This is the big showdown. Now I'm here to put it in this person's face to their face and it's on. You know, like little phrases can really just cut you down all over again, right? First, I get into the room first and I'm just like, my my shoulders are up, my shoulder blades are up and I'm just like ready. I'm super tense. Person comes in, and they introduce me to this person. Oh, this is Jason Harper. He's uh, the SCMA president. <laughs> and this person says, mediator says, oh, SCMA president, huh? Oh, you must network really well. Uh-huh. It was just priceless. I just stared at this person. I just stared and I stared at them. And I was like, huh, all right, well, you'll see. You'll see how well I network on this panel discussion. It went from there and the panel discussion went fine. It was, you know, it, it became less of a competition in my mind because I saw some people asking questions and they really wanted help. And I was like, well, you know what? Forget, forget you. I'll let me, let me help these folks out. And then that event comes and goes. And then there's this huge statewide conference that we're both presenting at. And so we're meeting in this big ballroom. This is where the realization hits. 
we're meeting in this big ballroom and I'm standing and I'm talking to a circle of people and he comes up, he says, oh, well, hey, Jason Harper, I, uh, I, I helped him get his uh, first contract, no. which is just absolutely not true on any level. And it's funny because I just I just stared. I just stared at that moment. I said, well, that's news to me. That's that's amazing. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, that's, God, sounds fantastic. <laughs> Have you received the chocolates yet? Have you received the, <laughs> the chocolates? And uh, and so, you know, that was that. And so I was just uh, the circle dissolved and I walked away and I was just like, I can't believe this, you know. But then I took a look at the larger room and I realized there were like thousands of people in this room that represented organizations across the entire state. And it hit me right then. I was like, why am I trying to compete with this person when I can just be me and and see what happens. And I like my chances. And I prove it enough to that point that, you know, hey, I, I, I was doing fairly well for myself. And so it, it was that hurdle that I had to get over. And once I got over that hurdle and, and that person just kind of went away in my head at that point, I just had to let that go. But once I made that realization, that's when it hit me like, you know what? This isn't really about anybody else. This is about me. And this is about doing the best that I can and being the best, being the best me that I can, being the best mediator that I can and being the best ADR person that I can. And so my biggest motivator at this point is, I guess in essence, it is me, but it's about just being the best me. If I keep showing up, if anybody keeps showing up, good things will happen. And by showing up, I mean, applying yourself every day. If you do that, good things will happen and uh, and good things have been happening. Thanks so much for being here with us. Um, and so just to, to say thanks for doing the podcast, but thanks for also being you. And something that I really respect about you is you're ready to jump in a lot of places, including special needs kids, yeah. um, people without voices, and it's a big deal. And we appreciate that about you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening today. You can contact us at hello at afafpodcast.com or check out our new landing page, afafpodcast.com. Well, thank you for joining us today. And please remember to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening to Asking for a Friend. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Our email is hello at afafpodcast.com. This show is for educational purposes only and is copyrighted. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thanks for listening to Asking for a Friend with Talk Talk.